morning. Good to see all of you again. My name is Jake. Uh, most of you have seen me before. I've been here a number of times, and I just kind of show up when Tom's away, so randomly here I am on another Sunday, but it's always good to be with you guys. Um, I'm a chaplain at Prater Hospital, but I love mixing up things and coming here and just digging into God's Word with you. So thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here um, in this beautiful place. Uh, we're going to focus on Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, so the first nine verses uh, of the chapter. It's on page 183 of your uh, blue Bibles in the pews. I'll also be up here, and I'll just uh, jump into that. So Ruth 3, this is God's word. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are our guardian redeemer of our family. This is God's word. When I was a kid, I used to sleepwalk. Did you ever do this yourself? Maybe you still do. I, I don't know if I do this still. I don't think I do. But I used to sleepwalk as a kid. I would, I would walk around the house with my eyes closed with this really creepy smile, my mom said. Just kind of walk around the house. And one of the strange things about this is that for some reason or another, I seem to think that the kitchen garbage was the bathroom. Not good. Not a good thing, right? Um, It's not appropriate for church, I know. But the great thing about being a guest preacher is I get to leave after this, and I'm going to be gone for a few months, and Tom's the one who's going to field your complaints. So... Send them to Tom. We'll be ready. I never did actually go to the bathroom in the garbage can, though. My mom usually caught me before I was able to do that, and she would kind of redirect me back to my room. In my sleepy, weird, creepy smile haze, I would walk back to my bed. But I remember sometimes I would wake up in the middle of sleepwalking, and I'd just kind of be standing in the hallway or standing in the living room. And I just felt this feeling of just shock and wonder. Like, how did I get here? What am I doing? I don't remember walking here. I'm just standing there. There's a shock and wonder. There was this fear and then this fascination about what's going on. Yesterday, I met a wonderful lady in her 90s, one of my hospice patients, Um, and I had an entire conversation with her in her sleep. And it was wonderful. She was, she was laying there sleeping, and she was saying a few words here and there. So I just kind of 
pulled up a chair next to her bed and started to answer the things that she was saying. And I knew she was sleeping. She was in this kind of weird state between dreaming and waking, in that weird state. And she was saying something about making sure the cookies are out of the oven. And then she was saying something about the car and wondering which one of us is going to drive. And I said, well, I can drive. That's fine with me. And she said, you don't trust my driving anymore, do you? She laughed in her sleep and mumbled a few more things. And I said, well, that's fine. You can drive. And when I said that, she, her eyes shot open and she looked at me and she was visibly startled. But she didn't know I was there. She was startled. She was afraid. I was just sitting there right next to her bed. And then this smile started to grow on her face, right? But she couldn't, she couldn't remember my name, but she recognized my face, right? So she smiled at me. There was initially this fear and then this fascination. There was this shock of like, what is someone doing here? And then delight, right? Because she knows who it is. I imagine Boaz felt something similar when he woke up that night and he found a woman lying at his feet. Right? Fear, shock, what's going on, and then delight because he hears her voice. And he's sleeping on the threshing floor because at that time was a, a time of particular lawlessness and there were groups of bandits and thieves roaming the countryside. And if you did not stay with the work that you had produced during the day, it's likely that's going to be gone in the morning. So he's sleeping right there with the grain he produced for that day. And you can imagine him sleeping for a while and he feels this cold breeze on his bare feet, which will probably wake you up after a while if your feet are exposed. Right? He feels this cold air. It startles him awake, and he rubs that, uh, that evening of alcohol and merriment from his eyes. Have you ever had one of those mornings? Right? He wakes up, and he suddenly feels a terrible wave of shock and fear because there is someone at his feet. You can imagine the terror. You can imagine what he thinks at first. Someone has gotten in, someone has intruded on our property, and they're here to kill me. But fear wakes him up quick. He wakes up quick, right? Kind of like those moments when you wake up in the morning and you're curious as to how in the world you could feel so well-rested. And then that wave of fear hits you because you realize you've overslept your alarm by like three hours. That ever happened to you? Fear wakes you up quick, right? That fear rushes through you. And so he asks, who is this? Who are you? Who are you, he asks. And he hears that voice. He says, it's Ruth, your servant. And he realizes it's the widow from his fields, the immigrant, the beautiful young woman gleaning from his crop, the one who caught his eye. There is initially this terrible fear and then this wonderful delight, right in the middle of the evening. Now, make no mistake, as terrifying as this was for Boaz, it was more so for Ruth. It was almost certainly more frightening for her. Because her mother-in-law, Naomi, had instructed her to take an enormous risk in the middle of the night. This is a big risk. It's a very big risk for Ruth to sneak onto the threshing floor in a time of lawlessness, and here she is. How is Boaz going to react? We don't know. We don't know how this man is going to react. Ruth is absolutely vulnerable. She's an impoverished widow, right? She's, and not just that, she's a Moabite, which means she is racially and culturally despised in Israel. 
So she's on the outskirts of society. She is totally at risk. Boaz is a wealthy and powerful man. He can do with her whatever he wants, and there she is, and she's trusting. She's trusting the goodness and the character of this man. She bets everything on his character. Everything. She even bets her life on his character because if this Boaz isn't who she believes he is, she's going to pay. See, we don't know what he could do with her. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, we learned, devised this plan. And she did it with good, heartfelt intention. She had a good intention behind it. She wanted to ensure that Ruth, who had been so faithful to her, has a future, that she has a husband, she has a family of her own. In Hebrew, that she has rest. What it says, literally, that she has rest, which means that she has security. She has a place of her own. She has belonging. But this plan is incredibly reckless. It's an incredibly reckless plan, to say the least. It's as dangerous as it is creative. First, Naomi tells Ruth, to get dressed up, to wash and put on perfume, get dressed up in her best clothes. In other words, she's saying, stop dressing like a widow. Make him know that you're available. Right? Make him know you're available. Second, Ruth is to act like some kind of stealthy ninja and sneak on to the property when these guys are already on high alert because who knows what kind of thieves are roaming around. And at that day and time, she's a woman, she's very vulnerable, she has no one um, watching out for her. Again, very risky. Third, Ruth is to wait until Boaz is in, quote, good spirits, our translation says, a.k.a. wait until he's a little tipsy, having a good time, and ready to pass out. See, the, I love the Bible because it's so real about humanity. We kind of clean it up in our translations, right? But the Bible is, is so honest about real life. So wait till he's a little sleep, a little tipsy until he passes out, and finally sneak up on him and let him find you there all dressed up in the middle of the night. Now, there is some debate among scholars as to whether Naomi is actually trying to force the issue here. You know? Perhaps she is trying to put these two in a position wherein Boaz takes advantage of Ruth and then has to marry her to save face. That's possible. Because if you read this in the Hebrew, there's double meanings for so many of these words here. And if you're reading it, you might think that this is going to lead to some intimate encounter. Right? But then the genius of these authors, it's just this playful and creative writing, they, they turn the tables once again and they switch it right back. And it's, it's not going to be something, you know, worse than PG-13. It's actually going to be a comment on the character of Ruth and the character of Boaz. They switch it again right away. We think it's going one way, and it goes a different way, just like that. This is a story about the character of Ruth and the character of Boaz. Because we see that Ruth goes for broke. She puts all her chips in, and she says, Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer. Literally in the Greek, goel, you are the redeemer of our family. And Boaz recognizes it right away because it's a marriage proposal. And he understands the language. He knows what, he's at, he knows what she's asking. See, spread the corner of your garment over me is a way of saying, make us one. Under the same garment. Bring me under your covering. 
Bring me into your family. Make me yours. Under the same garment. You're my Goel. You're my Redeemer. And by the way, if uh, you're going to propose to someone, don't do it like this. It's not going to turn out well. This is my pastoral advice for the day. There are some things in the Bible that don't completely translate to our lives. This is one of them. Don't try this, okay? That's my freebie. See, Ruth and Acts, a terribly risky plan. This is a terribly risky plan, but it pays off. It actually works. And she says to Boaz, marry me. You are legally my Goel, the person meant to restore my fortunes and give me a future when I have nothing. And you can kind of read between the lines. She's kind of saying, listen, I know there's something between us, right? And the, and the Hebrew authors are kind of hinting at this throughout the story. They are catching one another's eye here and there, this Boaz and Ruth. Remember, Boaz sees her. He notices her right away in the field. So something about her strikes him. She's kind of saying, you felt this, right? Let's go for it. Let's get married. Let's do this. You're my Goel. You're my Redeemer. We're not going to mess around anymore. It's not just practical right here, right? There's actually something under the surface between these two. But Ruth is incredibly vulnerable in this situation, and she boldly trusts the goodness and generosity of Boaz. She boldly trusts his character. She throws herself at his mercy. And spoiler alert, Boaz says yes. Boaz says yes. And I don't mean to steal Tom's thunder for next week, but he's not here, and it's too tempting. And these two, of course, the story says they have a baby named Obed. Obed, as it turns out, becomes the grandfather of one King David who is an ancestor of one small-town, Nazarene, carpenter rabbi named Jesus. Mic drop. <laughs> That's the Bible, right? That's God doing something in real, normal, everyday life. Ruth couldn't have written it. Boaz couldn't have written it. This is God at work in real human lives. The book of Ruth, if nothing else, is telling us this, this kind of thing is what God delights in doing. He delights in doing this stuff. See, Ruth is on the outskirts of fashionable society. She's financially desperate. She's a grieving widow. She's an immigrant of a different race. And this Ruth becomes a blood relative of Jesus Christ, a Moabite. The one through whom the world will be redeemed. And God makes, that, makes all of that happen in this story, without barely being mentioned. He's mentioned a few times between the characters. He's never actually mentioned outright his name, Yahweh, by the narrator. Never mentioned. And yet he is working under the surface in every aspect of this story. He takes forgotten, broken people who are willing to trust him, who are willing to trust that he is good and generous, and he eagerly brings them into his story of redemption. Puts them right at the center. Broken people who are willing to trust that he's good. Friends, that's you and me. That's us. Embrace your brokenness. Fall at his feet. 
trust his generous heart, and watch what he does. It doesn't mean we won't suffer. It doesn't mean we won't hurt. Of course not. It doesn't mean all of your wildest dreams will come true. Remember Napoleon Dynamite? (laughs) Vote for Pedro, and all your wildest dreams will come true. No. It's not believe in Jesus, and all your wildest dreams will come true. Your life will probably look a lot different than you thought it would when you say yes to him. Because you can't write this. It might look so much different than you thought it would, but it's going to be a big life, right? It's going to be a life painted by the colors of grace in every single way. And we don't know the impact of our lives, do we? We don't. We make some plans here and there. We take some actions here and there. We don't know what the bigger impact is. See, that was a bad plan to send a vulnerable foreigner, Ruth, in the middle of the night to the bed of a powerful man. That was a bad plan. And yet, and yet God was intricately working in the midst of it. God works even in our bad plans. Hallelujah, especially for me. God works in our bad plans. He works in our failures and our missteps. He works in our doubts and in our questions. Yes, make plans. Make plans for your life. Take risks. But recognize that plans are sometimes no match for reality, are they? Right? Plans are just plans. They can blow up at any minute. I want to share something that just this struck me yesterday. Something happening in my life that kind of illustrates this. My dad... Um, just went on hospice on Monday. It was bad lung cancer, right? And I went home, I went home yesterday to see him and my mom, just to check in on him. And he has had this project going for the past year on our back porch uh, where he's kind of been restoring the back porch, right? He tore up the floor. The floor's bare right now. He puts, he's trying to put up new paneling, put in new windows, beautiful space. I, I, I stepped onto the back porch yesterday, and it's like there was just a pause in all the work, right? There's tools lying around. Floors tore up. The walls are, are stripped. You could see the plans literally right there. The plans that he had to finish this, this room. And this is all evidence of a plan toppled by reality. Sometimes that happens in this world, right? Sometimes we make plans, and they're just overturned. You see, the book of Ruth tells us to make plans, right? Make plans. Take risks. Take bold risks. Live your life. But more than all of that, trust in the good heart of God for your future. Trust in God for your future. There's nothing else you can trust. That's what Ruth is telling us. He is working in your lives in in ways that we cannot even imagine. Ruth says, trust this one. He's good. He's good. Don't lose sleep planning your life. Use your energy to trust the Goel, the redeemer of your life. You think Ruth ever imagined that she would become the great, 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 however many greats, great, great grandmother of Jesus? (laughs) Probably not. Yahweh's Messiah on earth. This Moabite woman, 
gleaning crops in a field is the great, great, great grandmother of Jesus Christ? She never could have written that. See, we try to write our lives. We try to direct them and orchestrate them every day. TV tells us we can do this all the time, but sometimes life has different realities for us. See, this, this story really knows who we are. This story really knows who, who, who human beings are. It's totally honest about us. See, we make terrible plans all the time. I know I do. Sometimes we just make bad plans. And we stubbornly follow them past the point of no return. <laughs> and Ruth recognizes this. The whole story recognizes it. The Bible tells us that so much is out of our control. Right? So much is out of our control. And if you're a Christian, know this. The absence of control can be a gift of grace. It really can be a gift of grace because it makes real in our lives what we already believe in our heads, which is our lives are held by the wounded hands of a God who loves us. Our futures are in his hands. There's only so much we can plan. There's only so much we can do. Rest in him holding you. Right? That's what Ruth is saying. We have a redeemer, a goel, a boaz, as it were, whose shockingly beautiful plan for this world is actually going to come true despite us, despite our bad plans, despite our good plans. Actually, his plan is going to come true. He has set it forth. See, we have a redeemer who is never going to abandon us, doesn't mean we won't suffer. It doesn't mean God rescues us from pain. Clearly not. It means God's love wins in the end, despite us. God's love will win in the end. Our redemption is bigger than we think. And it's already complete. Our redemption is already complete. Turn your eyes to your Goel, the Redeemer, the one on the cross, who said yes to you before the beginning of the world. You know, when Ruth asks for Boaz's hand in, in marriage, there's a moment in that silence where Boaz can say no, right? In fact, he might say no in that moment. But I want to see that, say this as clearly as possible. God in Jesus Christ has already said yes to you and me. He's already said yes to us while we were sinners, Paul said. That's when he said yes to us. The real you. The real you and all your brokenness. The real me and all my brokenness. So say yes with your life in return and watch him move. Watch him do stuff. You know, there's a story I recently heard about the evangelist Alexander Wooten who lived in the 1800s and he was approached by a young man one day on the street. And the young man asked him, what must I do to be saved? And Wooten replied, it's too late. Kind of joking with him a little bit. It's too late. The young man became alarmed and asked, do you mean it's too late for me to be saved? Is there nothing I can do? And Wooten replied, too late. It's already been done. The only thing you can do is believe. It's all gift. It's already done. Open up your hands and receive it. Say yes with your life. There it is. There's your Goel, your Redeemer, the one who said yes to you before. There was a Lutheran theologian who 
People used to ask him all the time, when did you give your life to Jesus? When were you saved? And he got really annoyed by this question. So he started answering it this way. He started, when people asked him, when were you saved? He replied, 2,000 years ago on a cross in Galilee. That's when it was accomplished. That's when it was finished. That means it's good news. News is not something we do. News is something we receive. Good news. That's the gospel. Jesus says, I redeemed you, I saved you, I'm your goel, I take on your debts, I give you my wealth, I'm the spouse that will never leave, I'm the family that will never abandon you, I'm the friend who will never betray you. Welcome home, Christian. It is finished. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, says this, there is nothing for God to do, it is finished. There is nothing for you to do, it is finished. God, the Holy Spirit, need not delay because of your unworthiness, nor need you delay because of your helplessness. Every stumbling block is rolled out of the road. Every gate is opened. The bars of brass are broken. The gates of iron are burst asunder. The general religion of mankind is due. But the religion of a true Christian is done. Done. It is finished is the believer's conquering word. Say yes to your Goel. Say yes to your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the one who has finished the work. He said yes to you. He said yes to you, and now he asks for your hand. Amen.